Um, so what I want to do today is three things. I want to clear up some confusions from last time about um, counterfactual reasoning and how it's intertwined with super forecasting. Uh, I want to uh, link up uh, some of the things that are in the final sets of slides on sacred values and taboo cognition and super forecasting. Um, and then I want to give you some examples of super forecasting in action. And I want to talk a little bit about um, this thing here, uh, condensing it all into four big problems and one, one killer app solution. Uh, first, I think there's some confusion about why thinking about possible paths and counterfactuals would be relevant to super forecasting. So let me give you two very concrete examples of how super forecasting is correlated to how people think about the past and possible past, ways things could have been, and why I think that's intricately intertwined with the skill sets that uh, are essential for long-term performance um, as a super forecaster. Uh, first, uh, there, a famous uh, economist, Albert Hirschman, had a wonderful phrase. It was called it uh, self-subversion. Some people he thought were capable of thinking in self-subverting ways. Um, what would a self-subverting liberal or conservative look like thinking, say, about the Cold War? Uh, a self-subverting liberal might say, well, you know, um, I don't like Reagan, I don't think he was right, but yeah, there must be some truth to the counterfactual that if he hadn't been in power and doing what he did, the Soviet Union might still be around. Or a self-subverting liberal might say, uh, excuse me, well, you get the idea. A self-subverting uh, liberal would, would, would say maybe Reagan did, did play a role in, in the disintegration of the Soviet Union. A self-subverting conservative might say, well, uh, you know, I like Reagan a lot, but it's quite possible that the Soviet Union would have disintegrated anyway, because there were lots of other forces in place. So self-subversion is an integral part of what makes super forecasting cognition work. It's the willingness to tolerate dissonance. Uh, it's, it's hard to be uh, an extremist when you engage in self-subverting counterfactual cognition. That's, so that's the, the first example. The second example um, is, it deals with um, how regular people think about fate and how super forecasters think about it, which is they don't. Uh, but regular people often invoke fate, or it was meant to be, as an explanation for things. So even when they know that someone won a lottery for, you know, they, they know that there's a huge component of, of chance in lotteries, but they really don't know it. <laughs> and when, when someone wins a lottery because they, they, they chose the magic ball number on the basis of the birth dates or death dates of loved ones, um, they're inclined to say that it was meant to be. It had, it had to work out the way it did. Many, many regular people do that. Super forecasters think that's just total nonsense. Someone, it was just statistically inevitable someone was going to win and, 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 and someone won. But super forecasters take it even further into, into other realms where you know, even often very sophisticated people don't take it. Uh, so I don't know how many ever saw the movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow in which um, her fate hinges on whether or not she makes a subway connection, hence the Sliding Doors title. And in, in the world in which she doesn't make the connection, she, she goes back home uh, uh, and discovers that her husband is a jerk and uh, her life gets onto a much better track. Um, but in the world in which she does get into the subway, uh, her, her, her life continues on a, on a much more miserable course. Um, this is the idea of, of what, what Danny called in one of his early papers, close call counterfactual. It, it almost happened. And a lot of movies have a lot of close call counterfactuals, things that almost happened, cliffhangers, things that almost happened, a very, very common theme in Hollywood. Um, well, when you ask people to think about uh, ways in which, say, they might not have met their loved one, 
someone that someone they love deeply. Um, you know, you, you might not have gone to that party, or you might have missed that subway connection, or you might have taken a different job somewhere else. We all know that there are countless contingencies in life that underlie our meeting or connecting with particular people who are near and dear to us now. Um, now, when you bring that to the attention of ordinary people, that makes them all the more convinced that the love of their life was meant to be. It was fated in some mysterious teleological fashion. Don't push me on what they mean by fated, because they don't really know. But they, <laughs> they sense it was fated. It was meant to be. Uh, when you ask super forecasters this, they look at you as if you're crazy. Uh, that's just not the way the world is. They're willing to, to tolerate the dissonant thought that, yeah, I, I could easily be married to somebody else. I could easily be with, with somebody else doing very different things. So super forecasters, their minds are wired up in different ways. And how they think about possible pasts sheds valuable light on that. Okay. It, it also connects, so I hope that helps to clarify some of the confusion about why we were talking about counterfactuals. They're, they're, they're really very important diagnostic tools for, how, for people's mental models of the, of the past. And those mental models very much connect to how they think about possible futures. So you, you can't really dissociate them. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up from last time was something Dean, Dean Kamen brought up toward the end about uh, the legal system uh, as a forecasting system. And, and I, then I, re I responded by talking about a, a famous article by Barack Obama's constitutional law professor, Larry Tribe, Trial by Mathematics. And, it's, and I said, well, the legal system doesn't really think of itself as, making, as, as, as a forecasting system or as making explicit trade-offs between false positives and false negatives. Uh, the legal system is... It, most people in the legal system resonate to Tribe's argument that it would delegitimize the system if they were to explicitly acknowledge that they're making those sorts of trade-offs. And when you talk with super forecasters about this, they, they, they dislike Tribe's argument quite a bit. Uh, when you talk to law professors, a lot of them say, yeah, that's really a, a very important function of the legal system. And, and, and it, you know, even if it means that we're going, we have to degrade our accuracy, we're going to, uh, it's better to maintain this legitimization myth that beyond a reasonable doubt really is beyond a reasonable doubt. And no, we're not going to talk about 88% or 97% probabilities of guilt to try to become granular about it. It's going to be this way or that way. And when it's that way, it's just that way. There's, there's a finality to it, to it all. Um, and super forecasters don't, tend, tend not to like that. Even, if they, even when they understand the legitimation argument, they tend, they, tend not to, um, they tend not to resonate to it. And when I asked you around the table how many of you agree with the, 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 the tribe thesis that it's a bad idea to be explicit about those sorts of trade-offs, as I recall, a significant number of you said yes, that, that it was probably a bad idea. And a significant number of you said no. And, an even more significant number of you didn't really know, <laughs> or were or, or, or otherwise otherwise engaged. Um, so, uh, how is that relevant to super forecasting? Well, super forecasters don't um, have much respect for taboo boundaries on on cognition. They they they, they don't uh, respect very much the, the 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 boundaries of the thinkable in in in, in the social order. Um, so they're, 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 they're much more likely, for example, to be um, uh, puzzled by why people would get really annoyed at Larry Summers when he made some of his more famous uh, controversial remarks in the course of his career. Uh, one, of the most, one of the early ones that many people have forgotten now, when we, he was a chief economist at the World Bank, was that uh, he wondered out loud in a memo why Central Africa was so underpolluted. Underpolluted. 
Uh, and there was it was a it was a rigorous economic argument that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of effective demand for clean air in rich countries. So why don't they move their dirty their dirty operations to Central Africa, where they desperately need jobs? And they'd raise per capita incomes, and they'd, everybody would be better off. And this is this is a Pareto improvement. Anyone taking Econ 101 should get get the point. And a lot of people were outraged by Econ 101. Uh, super forecasters aren't. That's one of the reasons why uh, Larry Summers uh, did not um, <clears throat> become uh, the, the chair of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors uh, in the first Clinton administration. Um, there were people in the, in the Gore team and elsewhere in the Clinton team who were, do we really want this guy? <laughs> uh, being being, our, being, our, being, being the, the, the top spokesperson for the administration on economic policy, uh, they, 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 they thought again. Um, and of course, he ran into trouble at Harvard when he uh, speculated about the causes of why women are underrepresented in STEM disciplines. And he wasn't saying anything, uh, he, he wasn't drawing any conclusions, he was generating a lot of hypotheses. And if there's anything super forecasters do not have a problem with, it's speculating about uh, generating hypotheses. Hypothesis generation should never be a taboo, taboo topic for super forecasters. So there are lots of ways in which super forecasters run up against the social grain. Uh, and I'll give you one more example inside the intelligence community, and it's, it's kind of—it's it, really the same basic issue we're talking about with Larry Tribe and, and, and the legal system. Uh, I guess we all it was a wonderful movie recently came out called Clean Kill. Uh, who's the? Um, what's that? The Good Kill. Who's who was the famous actor? Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. Okay, it's a really good movie. Uh, it's about these these guys who. Um, uh, operate drones in the, in, the, in the desert of Nevada, out of the bases in the desert of Nevada, and uh, they, they, may, they make life and death decisions about when, when, to, when to press the button, uh, and they have lots of guidelines about when to do it, uh, mm -hmm. and they have supervisors buzzing over them all the time, um, but there, 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 are, there, are <clears throat> there are no explicit trade-offs about how many, how much collateral damage is successful in order to get a terrorist of a certain level of importance. There are no explicit guidelines for how many, uh, uh, how much collateral damage is acceptable to save a certain number of American lives. The, these are trade-offs that are unthinkably, that you don't want to have expressed. Um, now, it's probably the case uh, that even if someone were to convince the uh, people in the Department of Defense and CIA in charge of these operations, even if they, someone were able to convince them that, you know what? We could achieve Pareto improvements here. We could um, reduce the amount of the, the, the level of collateral damage, the, the, reduce uh, side casualties, uh, uh, and increase our hit rate for terrorists uh, if we made people more aware of how exactly they're making the trade-offs and we trained them in certain ways to, 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 to navigate the trade-off space. Um, in effect, the Department of Defense would then have a paper trail that says that X number of civilian lives is worth X number of you know, terrorist kills or saving American lives. Uh, um, Dan, Danny once uh, quoted the president, former president of France, uh, talking about the Phillips curve, saying that number should not exist. <laughs> um, you don't want there are certain kinds of trade-offs you don't want to have existing, and super forecasters balk at that. Phillips curve is an unemployment uh, inflation trade-off framework in macroeconomics. And again, a, a politician doesn't want to be associated with, I'm, gonna, I'm, you know, I'm willing to you know, throw this many people out of work to get the inflation rate below X. Or, those, those are explicit things you just don't want to, want to say. Super forecasters are much more likely to say them, which may be one of the reasons why super forecasters don't rise 
uh, very high in, in, in deeply politicized organizations. Mm. Does that make it a little clearer how counterfactuals are relevant to super forecasting? Good. Okay. Um, well, what I'm going to suggest is that we, you could just take a quick look at what's in the, go up to slides, the sessions five and six toward the very end. And if you see anything in there that you would like to talk about further, I'd be, I'd be glad to talk about it. Um, I want to set aside most of our time this morning for you, you talking rather than my talking. And I'm particularly interested in getting your ideas about where work and forecasting tournaments should go next. And while you're looking at those slides, I'll just say one other thing briefly. Um, I sent by email uh, an article that Aaron Brown uh, wrote. Um, He's the chief risk officer of um, uh, AQR, American Quantitative Research, um, and it, it's, an, it's an example of how a really smart uh, senior executive um, could use super forecasting Ten Commandments uh, on topics that he, he or she cares about. Uh, so there's, there's re as, as I said yesterday, there's no substitute for getting on the bicycle and actually trying to, trying to ride it. Um, and that's what that's what Aaron Brown does every day. You know, he 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 is was a world class poker player. He loves to gamble. He loves he's he's a serious Wall Street guy, um, and he 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 really likes continually testing his probability judgments. He's in the habit of doing that over and over again. Anyway, is there anything in um, the, the sessions five and six that catches your imagination? A couple of the things I've already mentioned. What, what, what's the Lincoln bedroom story? The Lincoln bedroom story. Ah. In, in the mid-1990s, uh, there were accusations that the Clinton administration was, auction, was auctioning off access to the Lincoln bedroom to the highest political donors. And the market clearing price seemed to be around $250,000, and there was outrage. Um, now, the Clinton administration responded, we're not auctioning it off. This is politics. Friends do favors for friends. Now, if you frame it as friends do favors for friends, that's called an equality matching social schema. And it becomes much more acceptable. <laughs> when you frame it as market, uh, a mar an auction, it's a, market pricing, it's a market pricing social schema, and that makes it much more offensive. Um, and uh, Republicans were very suspicious throughout, but Democrats are much more likely to cut Clinton slack when he, got a, when he gave an, an equality matching uh, uh, excuse. Um, it, it's an interesting example of how we, um, even though we claim to have a great deal of uh, a great concern for protecting sacred values, um, uh, we often can switch it off tactically. So there's a debate in the research literature about whether sacred values are really pseudo or pseudo sacred. Now, I think a lot of super forecasters would think the whole notion of sacred values is silly. And of course, when people claim that they're sacred, they're, they're, they're pseudo sacred because you can't attach inf infinite importance to anything uh, in a world of scarce resources. <coughs> So I want to move that into thinking about hedgehogs and about the whole ecosystem that you've been talking about in terms of the intelligence community. So you've been really focusing on the boxes here. And we're, you know, there's also a role, as you say, for hedgehogs. Now, obviously, hedgehogs can think maybe in a longer time dimension. They probably have more difficulty making the trade-offs around those values. But they must bring some other things into the ecosystem that make it valuable, right? Yep. So, so maybe you could elaborate a little bit about that. And, and then a secondary piece of that, 
is um, to what extent can somebody be both a fox and a hedgehog? Is that an impossible set? Well, Isaiah Berlin certainly thought hybrid creatures were possible. Right. I forget. He said, either said Tolstoy, Tolstoy was a hedgehog who wanted to be a fox, or a fox who wanted to be a hedgehog. Or, or, he had but lots could of, he be? Well, he, he implied yes. He was, he was the second. Um, okay. Um, so here's another slightly difficult thing to wrap your head around. Uh, and that is that hedgehogs really represent a core scientific value. Uh, any idiot can explain a lot with a lot. Uh, parsimony is a core scientific value. The, the capacity to integrate a wide range of facts within an elegant set of internally consistent explanatory principles is regarded as a very high achievement in science. You want to give Nobel Prizes for things like that. It's, it's, it's really good stuff. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a style of thinking that is, that has, is ranked very high in, in the scientific status pecking order. Um, uh, I, I think uh, more fox-like thinking is, is regarded by many uh, famous scientists as being somewhat second-rate. Those are the guys who come up and clear up the complications later on, the anomalies, the complications, and you know, they're, they're, it's a cleanup crew, and <laughs> the messy stuff. Um, and it, 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 it is interesting that the world seems to be structured in a somewhat perverse fashion, that, that a style of thinking that works best in basic science may not work very well uh, when it comes to applied forecasting in rest messy real-world events. Uh, so it's a bit of a perverse twist of the knife. But they obviously, for you and the ecosystem, work together. And I'm still sort of looking for how they work together in that intelligence community ecosystem. Because well, um, the emphasis is really I think that there's a multiplicity of ways they can, they can work together. Um, uh, one very simple way. I, th I think Tom Friedman, for example, has a certain hedgehogginess to him. Uh, he, he was often characterized as a globalization hedgehog. Right. The world is flat. Right. Um, a, that's a big idea. <laughs> the world is flat. Um, now, Tom Friedman, I think, is a really good question generator. Uh, there's no evidence he's a good forecaster. Um, uh, in fact, I think there are some slight indications he might not be very good at it. Um, but I think, he, in some ways, he, he's an extraordinarily insightful question generator. And I think forecasting tournaments require insightful question generation. So that's one, that's one deep kind of complementarity uh, between hedgehogs and foxes. Are forecasters good question generators? We don't know. That's what I'm trying to find out. We, 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 we don't know. It's, 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 this is a, one of these basic questions in psychology, but how correlated are these important skill sets? Mm -hmm. um, and is, is there a general factor, a G, a general intelligence thing? You're just, you know, you're super forecaster, super explainer, super right. questionnaire, you, you just do everything well. And um, there are some people who do that, but I don't think there are many of them. So it's not a null set, but you don't think it's a very big set? I don't think it's a very big set. Of course, in the business world, which is structured differently from academia, yeah. you have different jobs functions. And the CEO probably is required to be more fox-like. The CFO is required to be a hedgehog. And there's an, interesting, there's an interesting literature on whether chief financial officers make good CEOs subsequently. Mm -hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's an interesting mm -hmm. hypothesis. I could imagine a whole world. No, 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 yeah. Uh, but that's not the only way in which hedgehogs and foxes could be complementary in the forecasting tournament ecosystem. There are other ways they could be as well. I mean, I, I, I think I said earlier yesterday that, uh, it's, that foxes have a somewhat parasitic approach. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're looking for um, the best pieces, bits and pieces of different hedgehog frameworks. Uh, 
So they, 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 they see a good idea on the liberal side, a good idea on the conservative side, a good idea on the doomster side, a good idea on the boomster side, and they, 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 they cross these ideological and disciplinary boundaries in a more fluid way. They don't, they don't, have, they don't have that much loyalty. I mean, hedgehogs tend to have some loyalty to a community of co-believers. The really important hedgehogs actually create communities of co-believers. Um, but, but, but hedgehogs tend to be loyal to a community of co-believers co and their core tenants Whereas foxes, and also I think super forecasters, tend to be more boundary transgressors. They're more likely to wander across uh, you know, the, uh, But would they be as good without sort of there being some hedgehogs up there that they can draw things from? Probably not. I mean, I'm just trying to get a... Probably, I think probably not. Populate the I, I, I think the answer is, is, is probably not. So um, you mentioned that there's a disagreement about the uh, degree to which deep cognitive biasing works. Yes. Um, and counterfactual thinking and um, uh, and clustering, these others seem like uh, cognitive devising techniques. Have you been able to quantify which ones are the most uh, important? Great question. Prediction, and then it's what a Danny say if he disagrees that the cognitive biasing doesn't doesn't work well. Um, I, I don't think you. I don't think Danny would make a categorical statement like that. But but here here's the. Uh, more, sorry, we don't know enough to answer your question very well because we were in the first four years of the IARPA forecasting tournament we were involved in a horse race so our job was to improvise and develop whatever what the best tools we possibly could to win that horse race so we would throw everything in the kitchen sink into it if we thought it would work right uh, so our training is quite multi-dimensional so if you ask me which components of, our, of, of, of the training regimens we've developed um, are, are most critical for boosting accuracy, that would require us to run a series of controlled experiments with random assignment to conditions in which we assess how well forecasters perform when they do or do not get exposure to one or another element of training. Um, that would require a much larger tournament, a much more, this was already a very expensive and large tournament, but it would require a much larger and more expensive tournament still to do that. Um, now I, I have I may have some hunches about about it, but there would be nothing more, more than hunches. Um, so it's something you'd like to do, something. I think it's something that's worth doing, especially if you're in an organization where you care about augmenting accuracy and you want to do it the most cost-effective way possible. And then, what's the criticism of the cognitive biasing when people say it doesn't work? Why do they say that? Well, um, it, I think. Different psychological theorists have somewhat different views of how cognitive biases arise and what even constitutes a cognitive bias. Um, and um, I think, and I'm going to turn this over to Danny in one second, um, that the more you think that cognitive biases are rooted in basic perceptual cognitive processes over which people have virtually no uh, conscious or introspective, introspective access. Uh, the more you think that, the more pessimistic you're likely to be about cognitive biases. So the paradigm case of a perceptual bias that Danny uses in Thinking Fast and Slow is the Mueller-Liar illusion, um, which unfortunately we don't have a screen so we can flash it up, but the Mueller-Liar illusion is an illusion even after it's explained to you. You see, you see the lines of different length even though they're the same length. You can pull out a ruler and you can say, yeah, they're the same. So you got the system to override on that, but you still see it as, as different. Um, so that's, that's a particularly tenacious type of bias. Um, to, to what extent are the, the biases that uh, impair uh, 
the accuracy of subjective probability estimates of possible futures, to what extent are those biases like Mueller-Liar, or to what extent are they biases that are more amenable to conscious control? Um, such, and I think overconfidence is, for example, to some degree in, 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 toward, toward the other end. But um, Danny, what do you think? I don't, I don't have a clear answer to that question, but I can ask another one, which is going to be related. Uh, I've talked a lot about System 1 and System 2, where System 1 is an associative system that, that contains a representation of the world. And System 2 uh, does more sequential type logical reasoning. And I've been wondering, about your super forecasters, to what extent is their skill uh, that they have a good representation of, com of the complex world, a rich representation of the complex world, which is something that I would call an intelligent system one, as against the possibility of enumerating, uh, the ability to enumerate possibilities to systematically go over things, which is much more system two operation. Mm -hmm. and, Today, it seems to me, uh, you were emphasizing the system too. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'm wrong. That uh, an ability to enumerate, to classify, to evaluate, <coughs> as against having just a very rich and, and accurate model of reality. And we know that's an important dimension of, of individual differences. Some people that we call intelligent have that. Mm -hmm. and, and others uh, have a different kind of intelligence where they're not very good at getting a, a, a detailed and rich representation of the, of the situation, mm -hmm. but they're good at thinking logically and in depth about problems. Mm -hmm. What's your view about super forecasters and that? And it's, it's related, but not identical. Um, I, I think one of the uh, more interesting things that happened in the forecasting tournament toward the end was the conversation that got started between you and Barbara about uh, scope insensitivity and um, the, the, the temporal, temporal scope sensitivity of forecasting. Um, let me let me I'm going to take a, this is going to have a little bit of a backup here, um, but uh, about 20 years ago. Danny was involved in a debate uh, with a bunch of economists over a method known as contingent valuation, uh, asking people how much do they value uh, cleaning up a lake in Ontario or saving some fish or you know, various environmental public goods. Um, and the contingent valuation method is a survey for doing that. And it, 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 people would, might give an answer, say, how much would you value cleaning up this lake? And they might say, you know, $10. Um, now, Danny was suspicious of this method, and he ran some experiments on the scope sensitivity of the answers people were giving in contingent valuation surveys. And what he found was, well, what, what, well, what, how much would you be willing to pay to clean up um, all the lakes in Ontario? And there are about a thousand of them. <laughs> Ontario is a big place. Uh, maybe there are more than a thousand. Um, but the answer wasn't very different from $10. Or how much are you willing to save 100 ducks that are oil-soaked oil ducks? Or how much are you willing to save 10,000 oil-soaked ducks? Again, the answer seemed to be very similar. Um, so what were people doing when they answered a question like this? Well, they, didn't, they, didn't, they, seem, they don't seem to be engaging in a very careful cost-benefit analysis, do they? They seem to be answering in a more emotive, attitudinal way, saying, yes, I'm against this sort of thing. I want to make an expression of this. Yeah. So, What's all, what, what the ducks have to do with whether Assad is going to survive in Syria? Um, well, so we, our super forecasters get questions about how likely is how likely was is Assad to to to, to be uh, to, to vacate the office of president of Syria uh, 
in the next, say, six months or the next 12 months. Um, and if you're thinking, Danny mentioned the term propensity yesterday as opposed to probability. Um, if you're thinking just in terms of causal propensities, you're going to say something like, oh, let's see, you know, there's, oh, what's going on there? Yeah, the Syrian army's, you know, been suffering. There's a lot of attrition in the Syrian army, but they do have Hezbollah backing them up, and they have the Iranian uh, um, Revolutionary Guard. You have some of those guys. Uh, but there, then there's ISIS, and then there's the Nusra Front, and then the Israelis are involved. There, there, there are a lot of things going on there. Uh, and you, you have a complex model of reality. Um, but you're not thinking probabilistically. You're thinking in terms of propensities. You say, on balance, I think he's you know, somewhat fragile. I think, you know, I'd say there's a 65% you know, chance he'll survive uh, the next, um, the next uh, six months. And, um, but people who are thinking that way are also likely to say 65% for about 12 months as well. They're not, they're not responding differently uh, to the time dimension. Now, that really can't be true, can it? Uh, that, 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 that's crazy. Um, so uh, the super so Barb and Danny had a conversation about whether super forecasters would be scope sensitive or not, and um, it turns out the supers are not perfectly scope sensitive. This is a very hard thing to do, and by the way, this is how you test it. I mean, any idiot can be scope sensitive if you do it in what's called a repeated subjects design. If I say how likely is it to survive in six months versus twelve months, uh, and I said back to back, you say, well, yeah, it's going to be a little different. <laughs> um, but if I say, if I randomly assign half the forecasters the task of making a six-month judgment, and then randomly assign half the forecasters the task of making a 12-month judgment, uh, then the question is, if, if, if that population of forecasters is thinking in a probabilistic, scope-sensitive way, they're going to give different answers to six and 12 months. But if they're thinking in a purely causal propensity fashion, uh, the answers are going to be likely to be close to interchangeable. Um, and the super forecast, what's the truth of the matter? Well, the super forecasters are not perfectly pro perfect probabilistic thinkers. Uh, uh, the, the super forecasting is an, is, is an art that's gradually being perfected, I think. Uh, they are getting better at it, some of them. And some of them are so committed to it, they just do get better and better. Um, and, but I, I think what, what, what Barb and Danny found, what Barb found in particular, because Danny was advising on, on, on this, was um, that uh, super forecasters are partially scope sensitive, and they're certainly way more scope sensitive than ordinary people are, uh, which suggests that they are thinking in a genuine probable, to, to some degree, in a genuinely probabilistic way, not just in a causal propensity way. Um, so, does that help to get at this issue of? Uh, I mean, it's actually very interesting because uh, you could imagine that somebody was truly intelligent, has an intelligent system, why would have? Sensitivity to time built into it, mm -hmm. you know, so that it's not it's mm -hmm. propensity over time. Yeah, you know, and and so mm -hmm. that's. Mm -hmm. But it, it is very helpful. My my question, and and that should be easy to test. Bob, you should know, is whether they do it explicitly or implicitly. That is whether they are they're aware that they're responding to the six month and. And they have an idea of you know what is the rate per month, and then they multiply it roughly by six, or whether it just they are so sensitive that even in the between subjects when they see twelve months, it feels longer to them than it would if they had seen it, the same people had seen six months. Which is it, Bob? Uh, it's this hybrid. You know, we we have this picture of of human nature from your work that. People make 
all kinds of mistakes. They, they think about probabilities in terms of propensities. And super forecasters, I think, are running the mental simulations. OK, the question's about six months, but what do I really think if it was 12 months or, or two are. years? I, I think they are. They're, we've, we've given them lots of Kahneman and Tversky-like problems to see if they fall prey to the same sorts of biases and errors. And the answer is sort of. Some of them do, but not as many. It's not nearly as frequent as you see with the rest of us ordinary mortals. And, and the other thing is that's interesting is they don't make the kinds of mistakes that regular people make instead of the right answer. They do something that's a little bit more thoughtful. Um, they integrate base rates with um, uh, case-specific information a little bit more. They're closer to Bayesians. Right. They're a little less sensitive to framing effects. The, the reference point doesn't have quite the, you know, uh, uh, enormous role that it does with, with most people. Um, it's it's a it's a different it's a more intelligent picture. It's not a perfect picture, but it it's really hopeful, I think, in terms of a view of where where people could could go. Yeah, and this was a conversation. This was a purely research conversation. To what extent do super forecasters show or not show particular KT effects, kind of diversity kinds of effects? Um, but it could easily evolve into a training phenomenon in its own right. You, you, you could give people feedback on it, and we have done this now. So I, 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 would, I, would, I would venture to say that if we were to rerun our scope sensitivity studies and some of the other KT experiments that were performed on supers now, they would do better. Um, they're, they're, they're learning more each time. So I guess it sounds a little hokey, but super forecasters get a little more super each time they, they invest in this process. And not all super forecasters are equal. There are some who, who are really, truly, deeply dedicated to this as a, as a skill cultivation exercise. And there are others who are just, you know, really smart people who are doing well on the side. I mean, this, this